I want to ask you now as we begin the message this morning, I want you to uh, do me a favor. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand up. You're for able body, just to stand right back up if you would. And I'm going to need your participation here. If you're unable to form these duties as a sign, you could uh, opt out. But if you're able to do this, I want to ask you to do the following. As you've stood, I want you to close your eyes. You've got to trust me on this one, right? I want you to close your eyes, and if you can, in the, the small square footage that you have, if you can make a full rotation, you got to keep your eyes closed, but make a full rotation. In fact, make two full rotations. Just do like this. If you can see me, that means your eyes are open. Stop and keep your eyes closed. Now, I want you to point north. When you've made a couple of rotations, point north and keep your hand up, okay? Everybody point north, and don't look at anybody. Don't cheat. Let's see how we're doing. Now, open your eyes. A guy on the balcony is pointing to the sky. He just doesn't get it, does he? Okay. Very good. You may be seated. And most of you got that right. Some of you struggled. How many of you are directionally challenged, okay? How many of you cheated? You just looked at where everybody else was pointing. How many of you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to close your eyes or spin around, right? You would not be able to know where north is. You know who's like that? Gary. <laughs> Gary's like, have you ever noticed he kills me? Gary's up here talking. He's like, well, you know, we're going to be meeting in the gym. Or it's over here at Bobaloo, right? Over on State Street. Y'all notice he does that? And with Gary, he's been one of, my, one of my best friends for years now. And I used to always correct him. I would just say, no, no, it's right over there. And now I just kind of shake my head. But there's something in me. It's OCD something. But I just, I, can't, I don't verbally correct him. But when he points the wrong direction, I just go. And I don't break up his, I don't break up his sentence because he gets in a groove, you know. But I'm just like, it's over there. It's over there. But that is north, and a, a lot of us um, are directionally challenged, but all of us, all of us are looking for true north. I remember um, a Seinfeld episode years ago where George Costanza uh, realizes that his human instincts are flawed, that he's directionally challenged. He just doesn't know the way to go. He doesn't know true north in his life. He's worried about his value systems. He's lost that mojo or never really knows if, or knew if he had it. And he just thought, okay, I'm going to do opposite day. Some of your kids do that. It's just opposite day. Instead of tuna on toast, I'm going to have a rye or chicken on rye. Instead of uh, being embarrassed that I'm middle-aged, unemployed, and live at home, uh, I'm just going to walk up to this unattractive girl and tell her that I'm unemployed, middle-aged, and I live at home, right? He just did the opposite. But you know, uh, that's silly, but in Scripture... The Bible gives us a different way to live. The church has spent a lot of time, especially new churches, we spent a lot of time, energy and effort, reading books and going to conferences. And the spiritual leaders of churches talk about being relevant. we got to be relevant. we got to be cool. And we got to be hip. But you look at the New Testament church, you look at how God designed it to be, and they spent a lot of time focused on being different. Being a compelling people because they lived in stark contrast to the world in which they were engaged. The Bible gives us some opposites. Some of you know this. It says that the way up is, is down. That the first will be last. That the greatest will really be servants. That the poor are the ones who are really rich. That those who mourn are the happiest. That those who try to gain the whole world end up losing their soul. That those who lose themselves end up gaining real life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 that God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to confound the strong. It's pretty apparent, isn't it? That God wants to challenge us on what our 
our true north is. This morning, without a gasp in the room, I want to talk to us as a church family about the season of life that we're in. And I want to put my cards on the table the very front. I want you to be as open as you can about this sermon, this message, this family talk that you hear. If you're a guest, I think you'll benefit from hearing this. But we don't want you to feel any sort of pressure about what we're going to be doing for the next 25 to 30 minutes. But this morning, I want to challenge you. Any leader has to. If you lead an organization, I spent time with um, a university president this week as I did the chapel service at Bellhaven. And Dr. Roger Parrott invited Will and Molly and I after the two talks that I gave. He invited me back to his palatial uh, estate there. Not his home, but his, his office area. And there were uh, literally, we had servants bringing us things. We could just you know, ring the glass and people would bring us stuff. And we would agree that college presidents are some of the most respected men and women in their community. Every organizational leader, a college president, a football coach, a pastor, needs at times, at least once, maybe twice a year, to stand up in front of his or her people and have a family talk, to talk about where we are and where we're going and something we believe that God has placed in our hearts. And this morning, I want to ask something from you. I want to ask something from you, and now it is that you wouldn't put up a wall of defense, but that you would be open to hearing the whole message today. And secondly, deeper than that, I really, as a pastor of yours, I want something for you. You, you saw it a minute ago when these young families came up with their children. I really want them to honor the Lord in their homes. You know, our church is only going to be as strong as our families. Our community is only going to be strong as our families. Do you believe that? And I tell young couples when they sit in my office before I do their wedding or before uh, someone else does their wedding somewhere else, I will tell them that everything in this world is going to attack your marriage. You know what? Because I'm married. I've been married a long time and everything in this world has attacked my marriage. My highs and my lows, the successes I've had, the strains, the times of discouragement, everything has attacked my marriage. I really want something for these young families. And as we talk today about resources, about finances, about our money, I really want something for you. We are called as a people, individually, and collectively as a church to live in stark contrast. And I want to say this. A lot of you know this story. It wasn't too long ago. I shared this with some of you. But when we left a church to start this one, we were excited and we were scared. And sometimes the scared part overrode the exciting part. And one of the chief questions we had is would God provide for our church? I believe to you that where God guides, he provides. And, and, and the, the real question I had is, is God going to provide for me? And my family, those, those three kids of mine, they're stubborn creatures. They want three square meals a day. Sometimes they want shoes and backpacks and braces and things like that, right? But I wondered, is God going to be able, will he provide for me? Susan, my wife, went to the post office one day when Fawner Church was just a rumor. We were just beginning to set up our 5013C to be an officially uh, tax deduct, have tax deduction status, to be a legal organization. And when Susan was there at the post office dropping something off, someone said, are you Susan Green? We get that a lot. There's a lot of death threats on our lives. We're very polarizing figures. 
But she said, this lady that worked at the post office said, are you, are you guys starting that church? And how's it going? She said, it hadn't even started yet. She said, wait here. And my wife was left to wait at the Fondren sidewalk over there in front of this post office for probably about five minutes. And this woman who works at the post office came back and had a check written for $1,000 to Fondren Church. When we worshiped over in Dueling Hall, we didn't know what we were doing, but one night we just passed the plate. And when we passed the plate, God just opened up the heavens. And some people who shared this vision, who wanted to see a life-giving church in Fondren take place, they opened up their wallets. Some of those people are in this very room. And we were blown away because I believe where God guides, I believe that he provides. And we have seen that time and time again. And it's gone so well. I want you to hear this. Our giving is so good. Our church is so financially healthy right now that I've never been under compulsion to ask anybody to really give. How good is that? Isn't that great? I mean, don't you want to just clap for God? I do. Maybe I'm the only one, but I just want to clap for God. And Gary and I and some other leaders, we thought, man, it's going so well. Don't ever talk about money. And in three and a half years, I've only talked about money a couple of times. And can I tell you? I've sinned in doing that because money is beating us up and we're not going to be the church that God has intended us to be unless we talk about this more. Some, somebody may be out there right now saying, all right, preacher, come on, don't talk about money. Just, just preach the Bible. And that's an ill-informed opinion because it's hard for guys like me to, to, to pastor and to preach the whole counsel of God and to dance around. you got to do a lot of Texas two-steps because the Bible talks a whole lot about money. Ecclesiastes 5.10, we're going to jump back into our fall sermon series next week. But Ecclesiastes 5.10, we'll talk about it now but not next week. But it says that he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves his wealth will not be satisfied with increase. This is vanity. Jesus said that you, uh, you cannot have two gods. You will hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. What are you talking about, Jesus? He said it. You cannot serve God and money. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 10... It talks about how everyone in the room knows this, that the love of money is what? It's the root of all evils. And it has, listen, it has caused many to wander from the faith, causing them to be pierced with many pains. Proverbs 22 says the following, that the rich rule over the poor. Don't you hate that? It's not saying that's the way it should be, but it's the way it is. When I was in Cambodia this summer, I saw some children in brutal poverty. Children playing on garbage heaps, some of them in diapers or just fully naked. And there was consoles and wealthy people driving by. And I remember thinking, can't we do something about this? Hey, you're the rich. You're the rulers. Do you see what I see? The rich, Proverbs says, rule over the poor. And here's one that straddled a lot of us in the room, and it's why I've sinned as your pastor. It says that the borrow is servant to the lender. Now, we're doing more than showing Dave Ramsey some love this morning. Because in some of our homes, I know this, in some of our homes, there's what I like to call a drawer of shame. And in that drawer of shame, there are unopened bills, unpaid notices that are legal. There are letters from the IRS that haven't even, the seal has not been broken. And that pressure, that pressure mounts on us And it hurts us, and it's pummeling us. And when Paul said, 
My God shall supply all of your needs. I think there's a call to us to reconsider what it means to be a believer and what it means to be a church today. This drawer of shame is a heavy weight on some of us. So let me just say this for the the balance of time that we have. When a pastor stands up and talks about money, there are a couple of things going on. The first is the creepy factor. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just shake your head if you know where I'm going to go for the next minute or two. There's the creepy factor. There's, There's the reality of he's talking about missions and talking about money, and he's got on a gold watch, and he's got expensive things, and he's got a vacation home, and he makes a whole lot more money than most everybody else in the room. I want to tell you this morning that I'm not wealthy. My salary is good, and our church comes around us and takes care of our families, and we have many good things. I am a blessed man, and when you see us, I think you'll know that, but Susan drives a car that's about eight years old. When she goes through school zone, it it, it backfires, right? It just makes a shot. Kids run. I've got a truck that's a year from being paid off. We only have one home. And when we talk about money, I want to, here's what I want to do. It's one of the reasons that we hired an executive pastor, Jeff Hightower. If you know Jeff, you know that he's got a heart for the poor. He's got a heart for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. And he wants our church to be as generous as it, as it can be. And Jeff is leading our church. I've asked him as your pastor, I want our hands to be clean. I want our church to have integrity, transparency, and generosity. And I'm doing the best I can to remove the creep factor from the room right now. And I want to tell you, we, I praise God when I say this, but Jeff Hightower, as he's doing budget for the, for the upcoming year in 2015, he is saying to our elders and to us, he is saying, I cannot believe how generous Fondren Church has been. In this first few years, we have given away so much money and we have come to help so many people in time of need. Now, when it comes to money, there's two kinds of people in the world. Which one are you? There are savers and there are spenders. And inevitably, these, these people find each other and they get married. <laughs> can, you can feel me now, right? You know what I'm saying. Uh, there's a story of a, a man and a woman, and they're trying hard. They're living on a budget. They're, they're shopping at Walmart, and they're pushing a cart down the aisle. And the man sees a big carton of Budweiser, and a big case. i got to get my alcohol terminology right. And he picks up this big case of Budweiser, and he plops it in the shopping cart. And the woman, his wife, says, what are you doing? He says, my case of Bud. She goes, how much is that? He said, it's $10. She says, that's not in the budget. Put it back. He picks it up, and he puts it back. A a little while later, they're going down another aisle, and she takes a little jar of face cream and sets it in the cart. He says, what's that? He says, well, it costs $20, and it's my face cream. It makes me look beautiful. He said, so does that case of Budweiser. (laughs) What true north, what value system do we need as a people in our homes. And, and, and let me say this. I know what's going to happen today. Some of you are going to leave that you're married. And there's going to be, um, shall we say, a saver, maybe a hoarder, maybe a warrior. And there is a spender or maybe a giver or maybe a real generous person. And you're going to have warring factions. One of you is going to try to beat down the other. And my prayer is that the generous person wins. Okay? That's just my prayer. It's a little, it's a little selfish. I want us this morning to look at 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And there's this 
beautiful passage that Paul gives us. And I tell you what, take the passage down for Oh, you can leave it up. Just listen to me as you... Uh, now take it down because you're not going to listen to me. How about that? Just drop it, and then when we're ready for it, we'll put it back up. But in, across, let me give you some background here regarding the place. Just across the Aegean Sea from the city of Ephesus is the city of Corinth. It, was, uh, it had been destroyed about a century earlier by the Roman Empire. It was like a phoenix, as they say, rising from the ashes. It had twin harbors, which made it a very important strategic city for culture, for trade, for commerce. And they had a lot of building projects going on. There was a lot of construction as this city was making a comeback. Everybody was cheering for that. Don't you like to see something that's been brought low, that's been virtually destroyed, come back to life? And that's what was happening here. The key players that you need to know about is, of course, of course, Paul from Tarsus. And there was a couple named Priscilla and Aquila from Italy, and then another man named Apollos from Egypt. Four players, major players, who came to Corinth from three different continents. And in the midst of it, they charged their people. The, the, the church was gathered in homes, and they were coming to the temple. And I imagine, with my sanctified imagination, that some new temples, some new churches were being built to honor the Lord. Probably some really beautiful churches. But they were writing the people there in Corinth, and they were challenging those followers, those early followers of Jesus, to do what? To be generous and to give to those. There was famine in the land. There was, uh, in Judea, there was some, some scarcity that other believers knew in a different part. And Paul and Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila were living sacrificially. They were leading and they were asking other people to enjoy good things that God gives, but to sacrifice and to give. Why? So that suffering would be alleviated and that the church would be united. Wouldn't you love it? I would if we all left here today without the creepy factor. But we thought, what if? What if we worked together? What if we dreamed big? What if we didn't worry every Sunday if the balcony was full or not? But our biggest concern is, would this community miss us if we were gone? Why? Because we're a benevolent force and we're meeting needs. Paul writes this letter and what I love about it is the people there, evidently in Corinth, had made a promise but forgot about the promise. They were faltering on their promise. And instead of, instead of scolding them, instead of deriding them, instead of even pleading with them, Paul gives what I think is perhaps the most beautiful challenge to live generously in all of Scripture. Now we're ready for the verse. And it goes like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this. He's obviously already taught him something, but now he's going to break it down and make it simple. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. 
by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of what's the ultimate motivation, the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Verse, the last part, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let me ask you, don't you love generosity? I know of a couple of middle school guys, three of them actually, who uh, for a season are fasting. They're denying themselves Starbucks, smoothies, juices, sodas, bottled water. They're only drinking tap water. And all the money that they're saving is going to Living Waters International. How cool is that? And they've even added to that. Every time they use water, if they get a shower or flush a toilet or wash their hands, they pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God, thanking God for what they have and the clean water they have and all the blessings. If you're a parent of a middle school boy and he takes a shower, you too pray a prayer of thanksgiving, right? I know someone in our church who uh, wants to be anonymous. And this person has a relationship with a chaplain of a local jail. And they get informed when someone, this, uh, this breaks my heart and scares me a little bit. But this person, they get informed from the prison when someone is being released from jail. And they don't have a ride. And this person will drive to that jail and they'll pick them up. And they have at least a one-week commitment to this person. And they'll let them get in their car and they'll take that person. Now, that saddens me, does it, you, to think that we are releasing people. And there are some people that are being released. Don't you think there'd be people waiting on them? Or that we'd have a system in place? But evidently, we don't, okay? Evidently, we don't, y'all. Evidently, evidently, there's holes all around us. Evidently, there's hurt in our city, and there's brokenness, and there's sin, and it's getting the best of people. And evidently, sometimes in our comfort and convenience, we can turn away. But I know someone in our church, I can't tell you who it is, but they go to the jail repeatedly, and they give someone a ride. And you know what that does? They sacrifice time and money. They, they pull away from their family. You know what? A couple of weeks ago, this person missed a church activity, and I almost judged them for it. There's a young couple in our church. They're providing a child with a home. They're a loving couple. They're a generous couple. A couple of weeks ago, as we were made aware that they've got a real financial need, my brother down here on the front row called me when I was in Texas on a, at a conference, and he said, let me tell you a need that somebody has in our life, and I think we ought to do something. He brought it up. At our elders meeting on Monday night. Right there in my office. North. And let me tell you what I love. We found out what the financial need was. Or at least part of it. $5,000. And my brother said. What are y'all thinking? Should we do this? And every man around the room. Just cheerfully. Not under compulsion. Not, not reluctantly. There was no reluctance in the room. Nobody fought. Nobody said anything. Uh, nobody said anything negative. Everybody just smiled and nodded their head and said, I think we ought to do $5,000. Generous couple, faithful couple, loving a child. And I just want to be a part of a church that does that and that can do that. Would you hear me again? There was no fighting. There was no committee on top of a committee on top of a committee. Now, there are checks and balances because we want to have integrity and transparency. But we want to be a people of generosity where we can go to a need and meet that need. And guess what? There is great joy when that is done. Amen? 
You're scared I'm asking you for money. You're really scared now. There's a creepy factor. It's coming into play, isn't it? But it just makes me proud when we can see that. I, I just want to round toward home plate by saying a few things. Preachers do this. I don't do it often to you, but I'm going to give you some peas. And the first is the principle that Paul gives us here. And here's the principle. Would you say it with me, church? Read it alone by yourself for a second, and then we're going to say it together. You need to practice, okay? You got it? You ready to say it with some meaning? If you agree or you're thinking about agreeing, say it with me. The seed you keep is all you have. The seed you sow, God multiplies. I forgot to bring up my visual aid. I went shopping this morning at Whole Foods. It's going to be a little awkward. Here I come. I'm coming back. We could see money this way. We could see our resources like this. Money in a wallet. And here's what I know. When I just see my money as money in a wallet, I see it as mine. And the less I have in here, the more I give away, rather, the less I have. But Paul, borrowing from the early writers of Scripture and from Jesus himself, and we do own a vacuum cleaner, he said, see it this way. See it, not as money in a wallet, not as your own, but as seed that gets sown. And what does this principle say from Paul? The seed that you keep, say it, it's all you have. Say that next part, whether you believe it or not. Maybe you will. The seed you sow, God multiplies. And we believe that is true. I would hit the front row with their guest. There's Trey and Melanie. They just, they just uh, Charles. <laughs> the seed you sow, the seed you keep, it's, all, it's yours. It's all you have, but the seed you sow, it multiplies. Now, we believe that. You believe that about friendship. If you invest in a friendship and it's just sort of like a shot glass, that's all you give in that friendship, just a, a shot glass, you don't get much in return, do you? But if it's, a, if it's a big case, a big bucket, then something good is bound to happen. Why? Because you're investing in that friendship. I saw someone this week. I had not invested in that friendship in a long time. I've been kind of silent. No conflict. I wasn't trying to avoid him. We shared some special moments. Hadn't talked in a while. He hadn't initiated with me. I haven't initiated with him. But it felt a little cold, right? Because I had not... So seed, I had not invested in that friendship. Marriage is the same way. I know somebody, they're out of state, so we're not talking about any other room, but they're twins. They're adult grown twins. And one of their marriages is ending. The other one, I think, and marriage is always a private matter, but marriage, that one marriage is doing really well. Guess whose marriage is doing really well? The one where two people are sowing seeds and investing in that relationship. We get it with friendship, we get it with marriage, but why do we have such trouble with money. I know why. And when I say it, you know why. Not giving is not about greed for most of us. It's about fear. It's about fear. I'm going to turn the table on some of you. There's a chance some of you are going to walk away and you're going to make it about me. And I don't think it should be today. I'm talking, I believe, to our church family about something really important in front of us, but it's not about me. But this, this fear, this principle is this. We get it in friendship, we get it in marriage, we get it in all other investments, but we don't get it. And here it is. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't seem like it's true north, okay? But God is telling us this. There's math. There's addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. There is uh, Melinda Gann should teach this part of the sermon. But there is advanced math. Calculus, algebra, ugh, 
trigonometry. But then, y'all, there is supernatural math. Will you hear me on this one? There's supernatural math. And that is different. That is God's math. Where he sets a precedent early on to say, you ready for this? Live on 90 and give 10. Minimum. I didn't say that. All right? Not me. Another creepy factor is this guy didn't practice what he preaches, do we? We always have. Give. And so when it comes to this, I want to give you some, some practices that flow from the principle. And the first practice from this principle is planned generosity. You notice the first verse, it talks about in his heart. In his heart. There's something there that says, hey, I am going to make sure we get this done. Some of you did not miss a ball game yesterday at 2.30 on CBS with your favorite two guys, Gary and Vern. You didn't miss that. Why? Because in your heart you said, I am going to either be there like uh, the Moors or, or, or Gary was, or I am, I am going to watch that game. Why? Because you had purposed in your heart. There's a, there's a plan there, and there's also a priority. The second principle is you see a priority there. He's saying, hey, this is really going to matter to me. It's in my heart, and I pledge, I make this devotion in my heart. But we also, when it comes to giving in all of Scripture, we see the third P, the percentage. Now, I've already told you what some of you know. But throughout Scripture, y'all know I'm into numerology. Y'all know I love the Scripture, old and new, and I love numerology. It's just my thing, okay? That is creepy, I admit. But the number 10 symbolizes testing. In the scripture, there, uh, there were tests. You know how many tests there were for Pharaoh and the Egyptians at the time? There were 10 plagues, right? Uh, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with 10 commandments, 10 tests to see if your heart is, is fully his. In Daniel chapter 1, uh, Daniel goes through 10 tests that God gives him before the king. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of these uh, 10 virgins. It's a story of preparation, and it's a test. They're 10 to test to see, are they going to be ready? They come out with the, the lights, waiting on the, uh, their lamps, with their oil, waiting on the, the, the wedding festival, on the bridegroom, and they burn the midnight oil, some of them. That's where we get that very popular expression, burning the midnight oil. Some of you lawyers and college students, you stay up late to, to study and do, do your thing. I did last night. I, I burned the midnight oil. And they, they were tested. How many disciples did Jesus have? No, he just had 12. I was just trying to test you. Uh, but in, in Revelation chapter 2, the church has 10 tests set before us. And 10 is the number of testing. It, it is used repeatedly throughout Scripture. And God gives that to his people. And some of you think, well, we're under the law of grace because Paul doesn't say 10 here, does he? He doesn't. And I want you to know that. He doesn't say 10. But look at what Jesus said when some lawyers and people uh, who overthought things questioned him. Matthew 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe, that's 10%, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. But you ignore, uh, I think those herb gardens were for medical reasons, by the way. Uh, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. This is Jesus. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. When 
God's people are freed, he gives them a couple of things. Uh, he gives them time, sort of a time tithe, and we call that a Sabbath. Uh, take this time. In, in heaven, there will be a Chick-fil-A, I promise you. It'll be open 24-7. But they close down, and it's a principle that they say, we want to believe what God says about his rest. Now, we don't have to be legalistic about the Sabbath. I am not. In fact, when Jesus came, he said, enter into my rest. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give your soul rest. The Sabbath isn't just a, a time on the calendar. It's your Savior. He gives you rest. You don't have to strive with empty, meaningless, religious rituals. In fact, the honoring that Sabbath and throwing in that tithe can really become an ugly thing of, of compulsion and duty instead of something that's beautiful, that is a response to his inexpressible gift. That's why we rarely talk about money, and that's why nobody is forced to give or do we shame anybody or call anybody out. And you'd be surprised at how few of us actually see who gives. There is that percentage giving, but there is lastly, I would say, progressive generosity. And this is a beautiful phrase from 2 Samuel 24, 24, when he says this. If we could put that up. I will not present offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. If you'd like to write, would you write down 1 Samuel 24, 24. I, I will not present offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. You know what I love? There's some people in our church. They don't see the tithe as the finish line. They don't, they don't see it as some legalistic, let me just get there, and that's it. They want their lives to be about extravagant generosity. When we started the church, almost all of you know, we started in a bar, which was really cool. It just really fit us, right? We just had a lot of bar people. We got a lot of bar people in here now. One day we may put a bar in here, right? Just to, just to keep you around. But it felt so good, but we began to run out of room. We began to learn, more importantly, that that place would not be available to us long term. And one year ago, last week, we submitted a proposal. I see, I think, Brad Reeves back there and Joshua Medgaff, some guys that have worked so hard for our church legally to make all this work. But it's, it's astonishing to think. I shed tears last week to think about this. But a year ago, we were doing a proposal to the fine people of Woodland Hills. And we said, would y'all let us come in? We'll pay you money. We want our church to have room to grow. Nobody's on an ego trip. Y'all keep, keep me, okay? I mean, keep my ego in check. Would you do that? I, I told our team this week, I don't want to lead like a king. A lot of pastors can lead like a king. I don't want to be a king. I want the hierarchy to be flat. I want the table to be round. I want some good godly people to call me out and speak into me. And I, you know what you want from me? You want me to teach the Bible. You don't want me to talk about money a lot, a lot right? We're going to get past this today, okay? It's going to hurt for a few more minutes, and then we're moving on. We won't do it for about another year. But you want me to teach the Bible, and you want me to dream. But of my dreams, you want to take about 5% of what I dream and apply it, right? Because that's the kind of guy I am. And our church is going to be healthy if we do that. But you know, healthy things grow. Do you believe that? Staying with the agriculture thing. Healthy things grow. And we wanted room to grow. We wanted room to, to many people who want to worship, even on a rainy day like this, can come here and worship our Savior. And we wanted our church to spill over. 
I say it all the time. I've said it a couple times already this morning. We want to be a, a benevolent force. Some of us are reading the book when helping hurts because we want greater discernment so that we won't be a church that just throws money to people, but that we can help people. In our church, I want you to know this. We take what we challenge you to give, that test, and we double that as a church. More than 20% of our budget goes to missions. And if you give to this church, I want to say thank you. And if you've never been a giver, I want to challenge you to think about it. God's math is different. And although I'm a pastor that's well paid and provided for, when bills come in, when kids have needs, when money needs to go out, I am tempted to not give what God has called us to give. And sometimes it hurts. I have many nice things at my house. There's a door in our master bedroom that's broken. Its glass is broken, just shattered a little bit. It's been broken for about uh, two years. And I keep thinking, I'm going to fix that door. But there always comes money. There's always something else that I put that money toward. I'm like you. God has blessed me. But I've got needs and I leave things undone because I'm not a wealthy man. But I'm telling you, leading this church allows me to be a wealthy man in ways that really matter. As we close, I want to share this with you because I told you. I wanted something from you and what I wanted something for you. And what I want for you is to learn to grow in generosity. No begging, no pleading, no scolding, no demanding. You haven't heard it from me today. But I know along with the creepy factor is the embarrassment factor. And it's very real for a lot of you. I've got that drawer of shame at home, you may say. I want to give, but I can't give. And you know, there's room for grace here. Do you know that? We are, this is not a matter of compulsion. We're not persuading anybody's reluctance. We want to tap into your willingness. Here's where we are as a church. I want to be real specific. Gary asked me to get really specific with our church family. The building, this building that God has given to us that we're calling our home from Old Canton to State Street, it got appraised this summer at almost $5 million. And we, God's goodness, has gone before us through the leadership of our elder team, a couple of guys that I've mentioned, and our staff. We have worked with Woodland Hills to have a legal binding contract to own this building. We have secured our future. And it's why on our webpage, a while on an envelope you're going to get in a second, we're saying secure our future, restore our church home. Things have fallen down. This building, though beautiful, has been in a sad state of disrepair. And I have, this is the foolhardy part. This is where some of you are thinking, what is this guy doing? Get the money first and get the money and then do this. I believe where God guides, he provides. And we are in the process now of acquiring, the, of, of acquiring this building that's worth almost $5 million, And we're needing to invest, have invested a couple million dollars into this. But we believe it's worth every penny. We believe that's a sound investment to improve the sound and the lighting in here so that Jesus can be worshipped. To give people home over there, we just had room for a couple of people to attend. This room, the balcony and all, can, ho- can have over 1,100 people if God decides to grow us. Have you been to the children's area? Have you seen that? Have you been to the third floor? Don't go to the third floor. It's really scary. 
And I would say to you, we've secured our future. And we're asking you to pray and to maybe even consider doing what Susan and I are about to do in our own lives. We're going to let it hurt a little bit in January. We're going to sacrifice some stuff. If Fondren Church's finance team decides to give us a Christmas bonus, that's a hint. If they do, we're going to give every dime back to our church. And we're going to take our tithe and make it much, much bigger. We want it to cost us something. Because if a pastor calls people to generosity, he should live it as well. And here's what I want to ask for you. I don't know how God's going to do this, but I believe that he is. There's an old preacher joke where the preacher stands up in front of his congregation and says, good news, church, God has got our money. Bad news is it's in your pocket, right? Nobody's really laughing on that one. I believe God is going to provide for our people. A couple of months ago, someone came to Foner Church. They're an avowed agnostic. They don't, they're not really sure if there's a God. And he sat here. He loves this community. He loves Fondren. He loves the plurality and the diversity. He loves the collisions of culture of rich and poor. And he loved the idea that a group of people, even a faith community, was saying, we don't want let this building to fall apart. We want to save this building. And here on this property, and because of what we do, Jesus will save souls around the world because of our investment here. And we don't see this as an investment where we turn insular and make it all about us. We believe this church, as we share relationship with Woodland Hills, we will help their church exist even longer. And that through the ministries of the Red Door and other, other ministries that we have, we will impact people. And this building, in all of its 66,000 square feet, will represent collaborative, faith-based relationships where God is honored. This morning, I want to ask you, if you're a guest, you can check out. But if this is your church and it makes your heart beat thinking about it, I want to say to you, would you be willing to prayerfully consider what investment God would have you make? And would you be willing, some of you, to make it cost something, to maybe sacrifice and to give something up? I want to ask our team to come up and we're going to close this morning. I'm going to pray for us. I told our elders a couple months ago, I would lead us in the most ghetto capital campaign ever. There'll be no tear-jerking videos, no slick brochures. Just going to ask. This morning, this is my big ask. I waited all day to say that one. But I'm asking you simply to pray. What can you do? What is God calling you to do? And here's what I'm thinking. I've asked around. I don't know anybody that's got a couple of million dollars. I don't know two people that have got a million each. There are churches like that around here. That's not our church. Not us. No sugar daddies in the room. But a whole bunch of generous people. And I'm saying to you, well, I don't know how God's going to do it. If 1,000 people give 2,000, that's 2 million. If 2,000 people give 1,000, if 50 people or 40 people give 50, I mean, look, here's what I know. When we went to war as a country in World War II, I love history. Everybody in America knew we were at war. How did they know? They, they sent men, young men. But they sacrificed at the grocery store and the gas pump. And the wars we've had lately, man, it's like, are we at war? Let me, watch, let me tune in to CNN Wolf Blitzer and see what's going on. But I'm not really making any sacrifices. And what I love is that as a church family, we can come around and just see what God can do as we think about collectively giving sacrificially. 
There won't be one or two people making this happen. But what happens if all of us, all that are willing, all that want to, no one's having their reluctance persuaded. I'm not that guy. Let me pray for us. God, I pray. I pray a prayer of thanksgiving. That Paul gives us not a scolding, not a demanding ask, but what he gives us is a call to the gospel and that people who have been given this beautiful, inexpressible gift will turn that into a life lived differently. And Lord, I desire for this church not to be bloated and bureaucratic and all about fancy buildings, but Lord, to think of the deal that we've been given. To think about what we sit on and its potential. To quote someone from a couple of weeks ago down front, it's just pregnant. Our church is pregnant with potential of what you can do. And God, what I pray from our congregation is that we would ask you what part we could play. Maybe, just maybe, in the next several weeks that we could have our own December to remember as you open up the floodgates and provide for us as we bring repair to this building, as we give children a place to run and play and be taught the gospel, as we partner with some organizations here to mentor children in West Fondren and to bless families and minister to single moms. God, I pray. I pray that you would be glorified and that in 2015 I can stand here and talk again about how you, as you guide, you provide. And Lord, for for these people, I pray they wouldn't believe that their money is theirs and it's just in their wallet. But all that you've given us is seed that we sow. And it can make a difference. And just as a farmer throws seed into the ground and he has a sinking feeling as it disappears into the soil, so as we give, there's a sinking feeling of God, will you provide for us? Because because we've given, because we've been generous, we now have less. And what is true of the laws of agriculture and the earth is true in our very own lives. When we hold on to something, that's all that we have. But when we give, God, you multiply it. And I pray that for Fondren Church. In you we pray. Amen.